This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 194. Binge eating, why does it make sense? If you're an emotional eater or if you've ever binged when tired, overwhelmed, or because some of your needs were not being met, today's episode is for you. Understanding why it makes sense will be the first step for you to move forward and heal this pattern in your life. For today's episode, I've sat down with Ali Shapiro. Ali is the host of the top-ranked podcast, Insatiable. She's a holistic nutritionist, an integrated health coach, and let's be honest, she's a rebel with a serious cause. She is aware of how the medical system, diet culture, and body positivity movements all have their own flavor of crazy. Ali developed the program Truce with Food while in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, where she drew from her decades plus of working with real life clients and her own personal healing journey from emotional eating after having cancer as a teenager. If this episode helps you in any way, share it and help someone else on their journey. Leave a review on iTunes to help people find the episode of the podcast in general or share your takeaways on social media. I always love to read your takeaways on the episode so you can take a screenshot and share it and tag me at on and off your mat podcast on instagram to make sure i see it all right if you're ready to repair your self-trust with tools that are more effective than just habit stackings let's get to today's episode with ali it's gonna be a good one hi ali hello erica it's so great to connect (laughs) thank you so much for joining me today Oh, thank you for having me. I love yoga. (laughs) So to get us started, for listeners that don't know you yet, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey? Yeah. Well, I mean, I could go back forever, but I think a really great place to start is probably about 20 years ago. I had found functional medicine, which is pretty popular now, but 20 years ago, it was in its infancy. And I had found it at a holistic nutrition school called Institute for Integrative Nutrition, And through learning about functional medicine, I was able to reverse. I was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. I had chronic acne that I had tried antibiotics and Accutane with that didn't fix it. I was chronically depressed. And basically what I learned through functional medicine was that I had gut issues. I had had cancer as a teenager 10 years prior and didn't realize that all the steroids, all the chemotherapy really destroyed my gut. So I had found functional medicine and it was also revelatory to me because I had been in such diet culture that I was only looking at food through calories. You know, so when I was like, how did I not know about this? And it was like, well, part of it was I was only reading weight loss articles. It was also new, right? And no doctors were telling me about this, but it was amazing. I was able to clear up my skin. My IBS went away, my depression. I thought it got all the way better, but I was really at what I would say zero. (laughs) Instead of being negative, I was at zero. And I felt amazing, yet there were times that I couldn't keep it up. And my old disordered eating of emotional eating and binging would come back. So in the cancer world, when we go for our scans to see if we're still cancer-free, we call it scanxiety season. So I would binge on sugar and I was like, I know this is bad for me. And I know it's going to aggravate my IBS, my anxiety. Why am I doing this? I was still on my corporate job and that felt really overwhelming, but boring. And I would like eat at the end of the day. I'm like, I deserve this. And I was like, what is up with this? Because there was this immense amount of guilt that I now knew what I was doing to my health, not just my weight. 
And so this question of why couldn't I keep it up? And I was starting to see clients on the side at the time, but I was doing grocery store tours. This was very early in the quinoa, kale. No one knew what that was. This was like 16 years ago. (laughs) We were all still calling it quinoa, you know, like we didn't know. (laughs) And after about the fourth session with clients, we would stop talking about food. And there was this emotional shift that was happening. And I didn't know what was working, what wasn't working. And so I ended up going back to grad school to really ultimately study complex change, which changing our health habits, changing our food habits, changing our relationship to our body involves. And so I really figured out this model of how do we help people with, we can call it consistency, not falling off the wagon, peace. You know, my model is called truce with food. So that's kind of where I ended up. And I've been doing that for the past 16 years. (laughs) Wow. I'm so excited about this conversation. Like there's so many things you've said. I'm like, okay, we need to go back to this. So we'll just go through slowly. (laughs) I know it's Um, a lot. (laughs) Yes. And for listeners, and you know this as well, I have my own journey with emotional eating and binge eating. So this is, I feel something like we can really talk about from both of us having our own perspective and then, you know, coming into the middle ground here. Um, so I'm super excited. Yeah. You mentioned that cancer scan anxiety moment, you noticed that you were going to food because you were stressed. So this is a piece, but I want us to go a little deeper into why did you, and why do so many of us turn to food, turn to emotional eating, turn to binge eating as a coping mechanism? Oh, I love this question. So what I realized, and you're a yogi, so I think you can hang in metaphor, right? And yin and yang and all that kind of stuff is that food represents safety to us. So both physically, right? When we're born, and I would argue even before in utero. survival. Yeah. But even in utero, like literally what your mother eats becomes the structure of your body, right? And structure and boundaries produce safety, right? (laughs) So I'm talking, if we look a little bit metaphorical, right? It is when we're born, then it's about physical safety. The only way that we know that we're safe when we're born is if we're fed and touched. That's the only safety signals we're looking for. What also ends up happening is that gets coupled with belonging, right? So I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Becky, but she's this really popular American psychologist. And she asked this question on Glennon Doyle's We Can Do Hard Things podcast of talking about safety and saying like, how old were you until you could actually like fend for yourself and like survive on your own? And I was like, after undergrad, like I was like 22 years old, right? (laughs) So if you really think about it, and also my background's in developmental psychology. So We need to belong to our caretakers. We need to be chosen by our caretakers, right? So food gets coupled with this sense of belonging, the sense of belonging that is safety. And then you grow up in your family and there's food norms, but then there's also when you don't feel like you're being good, you tend to eat. And then your peers become really instrumental in that. So I was bullied, for example. And so it was like, I don't know why this is happening. I'm not going to tell anyone because I'm ashamed. So I'm going to come home and eat right? Because my psychological safety is what we call it in developmental psychology was threatened. And so this idea of safety, both physical safety, right? As adults, we still need to 
eat the right foods. Our bodies need food to keep the lights on, to keep our immune system up, to turn over cells, all the things. Mm -hmm. But it's also this sense of belonging. And we can look at that on a concrete level of, you know, I had to be gluten-free for several years. And this was before gluten-free was easy to heal my gut. And it's like a lot of people don't feel comfortable being like, I got to be gluten-free, especially a lot of my clients come from families where like health isn't a thing, right? It's like my one client was like, my dad's like, what do you mean this gluten-free thing? You know, like, just like. (laughs) Oh, I know exactly that conversation. (laughs) Or there's the fear of, what if it looks like I'm trying and failing because I'm not at the weight that I'm at? Like if I order a salad or if I order a dessert, what are the judgments? And those are belonging or psychological safety risks. Mm-hmm. But then we also turn to it with like my cancer scans, right? I mean, this is like the most deep existential, but it's like, am I going to live? And am I going to have felt like I lived my purpose? And I didn't when I was in a corporate job, right? So there was the fear of lack of physical safety, but also like, oh my God, is my time going to be cut short? I don't feel like I'm living my potential. You know, all of these bigger questions That's what was really going on at that time. I didn't know that. I just would use the word stress. So I love that you asked that question. Does that resonate around your own binging and emotional eating? Oh, yeah. I started to binge eat at eight years old. So fairly early compared to average people that starts with puberty. Like I think those mechanisms usually start, you know, in these moments for a lot of people. But for me, it was all about safety. What happened at eight? I'm curious. So my boundaries were being crossed. And so I needed to feel my own body and my own boundaries. And along my whole journey of disordered eating, food was always a way to get grounded energetically, feel myself, feel my body, feel that I like not only belong, but like actually belonged on earth, you know, like I'm here, like, okay, like it was a way to reconnect because I was already at that age, completely disconnected because of those boundaries getting crossed because of molestation, right? So like I was disconnecting and then food was the only way I knew it's further than just to soothe myself. It was to re- connect with my own aliveness, if that makes sense. Like, can I feel my boundaries of myself, right? Where do I start? Where do I end? Am I connected to the earth kind of thing, right? I always tell clients, you know, when you use that expression, like, I feel like the rug was taken out from under my, that's feeling ungrounded, right? You know, so it's amazing that you can articulate that in words because it's a felt sense, right? Because when we're growing up, especially in those early years, everything is so much more somatic. We don't really start narrating our lives till longer. And I could have not explained it that way at that age. Like I had no intellectual understanding of what was happening and what I was doing. But I love this idea. And this is why I was asking this question. I wanted us to start to talk about safety because it shifts our perspective that our emotional eating or our emotional binging is not so much self-sabotage, but is self-preservation. And I find when we look at it from this viewpoint, there's like a physical side, like, like, okay, like there's a permission, there's an acceptance, there's like a more loving energy than like, why am I doing this thing again (laughs) kind of energy? So I I want to see your thoughts on self-sabotage versus self-preservation in this case. 
That is one of my biggest things is why does self-sabotage make sense, right? And that question, why does this make sense? Because our first thing, I mean, I know when I was battling food, it's like, why are you doing this again? Why? What's your problem? And you think you need more rules. What is wrong with you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like, this is insane. But yeah, I agree 100% in that. Why does it make sense? And what I found as a facilitator and coach and whatever you want to call health expert is that when we ask that, why does it make sense? Or why do we say this is self-preservation? That repairs self-trust with ourselves. And then when we're really trusting ourselves, we can actually look at what happened, what's there versus you can't change when you're in shame. You can't even change when you're in guilt. I mean, when your defenses are up, you're not going to be able to see anything clearly. So asking, how is this about self-preservation? How does this make sense? And you don't have to believe it, everyone. You don't have to believe it in the beginning. But if you really have a trusted guide like you or myself or someone who understands this, because I feel like most of the world still doesn't get this. And that's a whole other podcast of looking at willpower and self-control and puritanism and you know all this kind of stuff. But it's like, oh, I can start to repair the trust that I'm doing the best I can. Because I don't know about you, but most of my clients are disciplined. And they have willpower. Like, I don't know any undisciplined people. Do you? Like, I do not. I do. I do know some undisciplined people. Absolutely. But I recently did this exercise. I'm in a business school program. And one of the questions in the homework was like, ask 20 people, what are your biggest strengths? Like from their perspective, not just in business, but as a person, because your business reflects who you are as a person, right? And I started to ask around. And one of the things that came up again and again was discipline, focus, follow through. And I was like, most of my life, I was telling myself the story that I lacked discipline because of the binge eating. I lacked that follow through. I lacked. And I was like, this is so interesting. Like, full circle (laughs) back. And so I agree. Most of the time we don't like the discipline. There's something else. The wires get crossed in another way and we're not looking at the right thing. You're right. I know some undisciplined people, but I think most people who come to coaching or come to want to change, you know, I find that- Their issue is not discipline. Yeah. And they're actually disciplined in other areas too much. And then it all comes out in the food Right. And so it's like, oh my God, because this idea, I mean, this gets into how do we define discipline? But for most of my clients, discipline is defined as restriction. And we'll go back to our metaphors that we can speak in. They're not just restricting food, they're restricting their needs, their voice, all of these things. And so, of course, you want to reward yourself with food. If you're not getting any other like satisfaction during the day, like satisfaction is a need. You can't just be hustling and grinding all the time. Mm. So, psychological safety is, we say belonging, and you can think of it as like, how do I want to identify? I want to belong to the hardworking group. I want to belong to the discipline group. And that's actually the problem. (laughs) It's like the obstacle and the path, like to deconstruct what you're really saying there. How do we change the thought patterns that then lead us into having to use food to soothe ourselves in that moment, to reward ourselves in that moment? Like, how do we stop the, I deserve this? Like, because not only I've been so good, quote unquote, but because I've been so, as you said, disciplined slash restricted in all areas of my life. Like, how do we get away from, I deserve this and food is a reward pattern? Well, okay, so that pattern specifically 
what I've noticed, and I should also preface with, I also think our thoughts make complete sense. So I don't believe in inner critics because if you've noticed, like only women are targeted as having an inner critic and it's like, no, it's a protector, right? And what it's actually protecting us from is one layer deeper is we have these stories and these stories live in our bodies Mm -hmm. through feelings. And feelings are basically like an emotion, so somatic plus psychology together. So they're your physical and people talk about mindset, but no one's ever located the mind. It's actually an invisible projection of your physiology and psychology together. So that's a little bit of a rabbit hole. But what I find with I deserve this eating specifically is it tracks with the trigger of being tired. And what happens is as kids and for people listening, I really want you to think maybe not about acute stresses that Erica and I just talked about, right? Like that we had, but think about the climate of how you grew up, not the weather, but the climate. And so for many of us, especially I struggled with my weight. So I got into being smart. I was like, I'm going to achieve, achieve, achieve. And so as kids, anytime we're achieving, whether it's through sports, through school, through being good for our parents, we were often rewarded with food, right? Like you're Canadian, but in America, we had this thing through Pizza Hut called Book It. And if you read five books, you got a free personal pan pizza. Or like, you know, I was afraid to jump off the diving board at swimming lessons. And my dad was like, I will take you to Dunkin' Donuts if you jump off. And it was like, done. (laughs) So then what happens as adults is whenever we get tired, we're not necessarily worried about accomplishing grades, but we want to succeed in our work life. We want to be successful parents, successful business owners. And so what ends up happening is being tired feels like it makes us at risk for not succeeding. And so we push through taking care of our body's needs. And then at the end of the day, we're like, well, I'm so exhausted. I'm so burnt out from today. I need something to reward me. So in this case, what the solution is, and it's going to be different for everyone, but it's really recognizing your needs. It's not starting specific habits, trying to control yourself more, but it's thinking about how do I want to be successful? How do I want to achieve? It doesn't mean you can't achieve, but let's think about the process, right? So it's like in the book, an example, what do I love to read? It's not just about getting to five books to get to the pizza, right? We're both business owners. It's not just about reaching the financial goals or the impact. How do I want to live my life Mm -hmm. in that process? So it's really starting to realize that it's not just about the accomplishment, but how you get there. And then that ends up becoming a lot more fulfilling because you're actually learning, growing, finding satisfaction in the process. So that's how I work with clients on that specific pattern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely one pattern that tired and then reward. Like that's a very simple pattern for people to look at, I think. And I also, I mean, because I know that you're really into, you know, somatic work and stuff, but honoring the body when most people are pushing as hard as they are, you're producing more cortisol. And so you need more extreme food choices to register, right? Like you need more sugar, you need more salt. And so when you really work on these patterns and you pay attention to what your body needs, you become more sensitive to sugar. You become more sensitive to salt. Because sometimes my clients are like, I'm not a sugar person. I like 
fries. And I'm like, well, that's still carbs. It's just salty carbs. (laughs) But, you know, at least the American food supply, and I know Canada is similar. Basically the same. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be honest. You guys have less guns. But (laughs) yeah, on the food front, it's basically the same. Guns is another podcast conversation we get into. (laughs) But so you end up when you really work on these patterns and realize why they make sense and are willing to explore them, you're really working on a holistic level and the results end up becoming more easeful, but it's still like, oh my God, to slow down feels really scary. I mean, it took me having a baby and going through early menopause from my cancer the past three years to really slow down. Like I was forced to, like it was not going to happen on my own. So I'm saying this as, you know, someone who (laughs) totally understands how hard it can be to slow down. Two things are coming up for me in this. In the tired to reward system, you said that we tend to go to foods that are higher in sugar, higher in another variation of the carbs to have that response. And that made me think also there's another pattern here with overwhelm and all the numbing. Like for me, overwhelm is in the side of the nervous system where you're playing possum, you're playing dead, you're oh, not free. You're freeze, right? You're like, I'm done. Like I'm not even trying kind of energy. And in this place, you also need the foods that are going to create like almost reawaken, re-enliven your body, but not in a healthy way, but in a like little shock way. You know, you need that big peak of sugar. You need that big satisfaction because you're so far down. I don't feel anything that there's a bigger gap to close there. 100%. And what I didn't have language for at the time too, is, you know, most people in somatic work will tell you that shame puts you into freeze. Right. So I had this like shame about the food, but then there was also this deep feeling of separation around, I can't date until I'm thin. Oh my God, I'm behind of that. Right. Like you get even more into freeze and then you need more and more food. And in some ways you also end up co-regulating like binging is like, I'm numb. It's like an endorphin, right? Like I'm numb below, but I'm feeling, right. So it's like all these layers, the food is how we're relating to ourselves. So it's like so much deeper than like, you know, yeah. I've whatever. explained before to someone who was like, I don't understand what it feels like to like do that pattern. And I was like, it's like drug and alcohol. It's like, you're almost, you're getting high. You're getting almost like tipsy on food, like because it shifts that cycle of energy and you get from the blah to the like, okay, like I'm back here. And then there's a little bit of joy. And then you've like, crash back down into shame and then you crash back down and you go back into that freeze state. But there's like this little roller coaster happening. Like you go up, 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 and then you crash back down. And while you're going up, you're like, tomorrow's going to be different, right? Like, you're kind of like, I have to like lob on to this like fantasy to bring myself out of this because, and I don't want to laugh about it because it's a very, very hard place, but I have enough distance from my patterns. I mean, I have so much compassion for like 20 year old Allie. Like she was doing the best at what she knew, you know, or 11 year old Allie who was being bullied and eating bagel. Like it's really hard. And it's made even harder by the conventional narratives that this is just a power discipline. You love food, you're gluttonous, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's, yeah. things are shifting, but not fast enough. So when we think of those patterns, we've talked about tired, or the family of numbness, how else can people start to identify the triggers, the thing that lead them into lack of safety or whatever, then 
brings them to overeating as a self-preservation. You talked about slowing down. That was like an important thing we've already talked about. What else or how even do we slow down if you feel like we need to actually point that out? And then what else do we do? Okay. So I think first of all, the question is, why does this make sense? And you're going to have to ask yourself that over and over again, because like so many times my clients will be like, this seems crazy, but you know, and I'm like, no, everything you think is crazy, whatever. Why does it make sense? Why does it make sense? Why does it make sense? That's such a good reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything that has basically been weaponized against you probably is some sort of self-preservation, especially the more marginalized you are. Like, it's just how it rolls. Then the second question I like clients to sort of think about is what is at the tail end of my food noise and food noises? I shouldn't eat this. I want to, can't wait to get home and binge. And tail stands for tired. A stands for anxious. And that's where am I feeling uncertain? And I think of uncertainty coming from the outside. So we saw this with COVID, right? Oh my God. There's unpredictability. You don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And you were talking about that rootedness. This is where food can really be that refuge, right? That we need because when we were more connected to the land and had more culture, I mean, I'll speak for American culture. You know, you give food to people when they're grieving. I've just had some friends diagnosed with cancer. I sent food, right? Like this isn't inherently bad. This is like an amazing source. Thank God we have this. But when it's chronic and we don't know what's happening, that's where it becomes a problem. Am I feeling uncertain from the outside? Am I feeling inadequate is the I. And I think of that as coming from the inside. I have self-doubt. Did I do the wrong thing? Did I do the right thing? Am I doing enough? All that. And then the last one is loneliness. And loneliness is really our social needs being met. So we can be with one of our best friends and feel alone, right? And clients often describe this as a sense of separateness, right? Like I feel separate. And we may say it's about our food and our weight. I'm the one struggling with this, or I'm not happy with my weight. And there is always some other issue. They're so happy in their career. Oh, they have an amazing partnership. Oh, their life is so easy. Mine is so hard. There's a lack. There's a projected lack of like, they're doing great. I'm not. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm separate because of it. So I think being able to identify that is such an important piece in developmental psychology. It's like a really unmarketable term called subject object move, but it basically means If I can see this trigger, now I have a choice because before that, I don't have a choice. I just feel like I love food too much or I feel out of control around food. But as I'm starting, you can continue to make this connection over and over again. You start to be, oh, I actually really not that much about the food because people can tell you that. But my background, again, is in developmental psychology, adult learning. Adults, we need to come to even the most obvious conclusions by ourselves. No one can walk us. You know, the the phrase, you can walk a horse, a camel to water, right? Or a horse to water, depending on your job. Horses to drink. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And so I think those are like the first two steps. And then what we need to start thinking about is rather than habits, because if we're dealing with complex change, it's not about habit hacking, habit stacking, because that just doesn't work when things are unpredictable, right? Hmm. So- if we start thinking it's gonna about- going to work while everything is controlled. Yes, It's exactly. going to work while everything is happening the way you're expecting it to happen. Yes. And then yes. it's going to go to shit. Yes. And in this, I think it's Journal of Health Promotion, a study was just published. There is no evidence that like traditional habit development works for complex change. And I think 
food is complex change and complex changes. There's a lot of emotion associated with it. And the more roles someone takes on, the less unpredictable their life. So habit hacking and stacking works for like 0.01% of people and they tend to have the most power in our world. So their voices get replicated. And then, you know, again, if you're trying to learn to remember to take a vitamin, habit hacking and stacking is going to be great for you, right? It's like, okay. Yeah, that's a simple just, task. Yes. Just about but, put in your mouth, you're done. Yes. <laughs> there's no like decision. There's no negotiation. You know, there's no emotional attachment to that. Yeah. If I forget to take my vitamin, I have no judgment of myself. It's like, okay, you're so busy, which makes me feel better about myself. (laughs) But so then when I think after the third step of this is like asking ourselves, actually, what do we need? Because our tendency is to then restrict. I'm tired. You're behind. You got to go harder, right? It's like we're punishing ourselves. Yes. And when I look back on, we'll go to the cancer thing. It was like, oh my God, I felt so uncertain there. And what I thought I needed was a perfect scan, you know, a clear scan. And again, that's great. And I am so wonderful. But what I actually needed in that process was to not pretend I was the strong one anymore. I was living in Philadelphia at the time. It was like asking my sister, my now husband and my boyfriend at the time, will you come with me? I used to feel like that was so burdensome to ask them. When my parents would call me, I'd be like, I'm fine. When I was sick, I was like, I can do this. I'm going to be strong because my definition of strong was to just kind of, you know, detach. And maybe I needed to do that at the time. Cancer is an ass kicker. But to heal, it was like, I'm scared. I hate this stuff. It's hard. And it was like, oh my God, that took enough of the overwhelm off that then it was like, what do you need? I need to keep my blood sugar balanced during this because that gives me resilience. And I need someone to be there with me. And I need to just be sad. And I need to be pissed that I have to do this at 22 years old when most people don't have to think about this, you know? And so we actually need less restriction. But then by asking ourselves what we need, we can bring the context. We can bring the nuance. We can bring to what does this moment need? Like this is your wheelhouse, right? And yoga, what is the moment asking for? So you asked about like, how do we slow down? Well, it depends on what does slowing down look like for someone? Mm -hmm. It might mean a less aggressive deadline. It might mean for me right now, don't rush through the second shift with your kid. Let's be really present. Like, let's enjoy what's here. So you really are able to ask yourself and meet the moment. And over time, that repairs your trust. Over time, you end up feeling more fulfilled. Because I think sometimes people hear safety and they think it means perfect conditions, right? You know, perfect conditions. And what I'm talking about is, no, you're choosing yourself. You're choosing to advocate for yourself. And that is a type of resilient, creative, trusting safety that you can bring anywhere. And that ends up- You being a safe space for you. Yes. Well fucking said, Erica. (laughs) Being the safe space. And I also want to say a lot of my clients don't know what they need. That's something that's just like important and to recognize, and that's okay. Well, the more you're numb and disconnected, the less you receive those messages from your body. You just, you shut them down. So they stop coming. Like it's a total normal cycle to go through. Yeah. Yeah. So I tell people often in the beginning, figuring out what you need might not come to you until a week later, but what we're measuring is not, did you get it right? Am I making progress? oh, it came to me three days afterwards, or it came to me immediately. 
And then over time, you start preparing for it because you start to catch on to yourself and what you need. Because it's not always different. You'll start to see patterns. Yeah. And then you start to realize, like, for me, like, the three things I always need physically are my blood sugar balance, I need to move my body, and I need sleep. Like, those are the non-negotiable. Everything else, I like thinking of it through blood sugar because I know what macros I need, so it doesn't have to be specific foods but I'm someone who needs animal protein. All right. If I'm out to lunch or there's not anything in the house, I need to at least have animal protein. You know, it doesn't have to be the perfect meal, but if I don't get that, I'm spacey. The day's over. I get cranky and hangry and I literally cannot focus. So you start to realize like when you start doing this, I call it the Oreo cookie method. Like, why does this make sense? What is hard about this? The tail emotion. And then what do I need is you start to realize like good enough, gets you really results. Good enough is sustainable. And all of this food and life stuff is so much more simple than we make it out to be. You have to do it repeatedly and consistently, but small manageable steps, not the all or nothing. Yeah. I think there's definitely a big player here in the all or nothing and their perfectionism. Like I teach a lot of my people for B plus, like forget about A plus. Let's aim for B plus and accept that, that this is okay right now. Like B plus is great. Can you yeah. be happy with B plus? Like, I don't even want you to try for A plus. Let's celebrate the B plus. <laughs> well, and I love that you brought that up because a lot of the work I do with clients is changing their perceptions because they'll say, I feel like I'm on a balance beam, right? And what they're saying is my top window of safety is this little narrow thing. And so I say to clients, like I've said once, like just aim for a B because your B is probably really an A, but you can't trust in that, right? Because you've been rewarded and recognized for the A plus, 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 plus. And we need to start recognizing, you need to start recognizing you. So yeah, but I love that. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) I have so much more stuff I wanted to ask, but we're going to start to wrap it up. I want to finish with a little like, rabbit hole, mini version, rabbit holes. (laughs) (laughs) kind of coming back to the beginning. And we've been talking a lot about binge eating, emotional eating, the patterns, the psychology, the physiology of it. And in the beginning, and you just also mentioned how like knowing your blood sugar and regulating that was a way to support yourself. So I want to talk about food as medicine. I know focusing on food is not the way out of emotional binge eating, but I think we can do two things at once over time. And there's something there for me that was helpful in my journey because you have this journey of healing yourself. You talked about IBS, acne, depression. There is medicine in food and there's the stories that we do the things we know that that are not good for us. So I'd wanted us to kind of go back to this before we finish, because I think that's an important part, although it doesn't seem directly connected to binge eating. Well, I actually think it's totally connected because I think a lot of outside, you know, those are two different things. Yeah. I actually think blood sugar regulation is like critical in binge eating. And I love that you bring this up because I think we can heal how we're relating to it. So I think one of the things to realize is that adults need quick fixes. And let me explain quick fixes, not like 30 pounds in 30 days, but they need to see that what they're changing is having a pretty immediate effect with their lives because we have so many other stresses, right? It's like, okay, it's easy just to study for A's if you don't have a job, like that's your sole goal. But what about when you need to pay bills, you need to take care of your aging parents? It's like, 
okay, if this isn't giving me some wins, we'll call them wins or, you know, there's no motivation. If you don't have a win, you're not motivated to continue. Yeah. So the problem that we do is most people, even if you don't have weight issues, tie being good and making good food choices back to weight because that's the culture we swim in. So what we need to start doing is actually tying how we eat to how we feel, not what we think looks good, not if it's going to cause influence our weight, Mm -hmm. but how am I going to feel for the next three to four hours? And I always start with blood sugar with my clients. I mean, I let them decide if they're more interested in the emotional or the food stuff in my work because I trust their body. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I want you to try. I give food experiments because I'm like, it doesn't matter what I tell you. You have to come to this conclusion yourself, right? Just like it's not about the food. People have to realize that themselves. So I give them two different experiments. And rather than saying, how many calories is that? I'm like, hey, how's your mood? How's your energy? Do you see a decrease in your anxiety? Do you feel satisfied? And so we just go meal to meal and just connect. Oh, that doesn't work. Oh my God. And so that slowly starts to take it out of the weight loss conversation. Now, it doesn't mean that you've been conditioned for 40 years of your life to want to lose weight, that you're immediately going to be like, no, I don't care about weight loss. But what becomes centered over time is I cannot not do this because I have many clients who are like, I use my blood sugar now as a tool for when I'm presenting, when I'm going for that risk that I want to take now that I used to think I had to wait to lose weight. You know, I had to wait on the weight. It's like, this is now serving me and my, you said it so beautifully, like I'm there for me or like, I forget how you said it, but the case for yourself. Yeah. This is the safe choice for what I'm going after. And so that is where it's important is to figure out two things. How does it make you feel for the next couple of hours? And I think blood sugar is just a great, elegant way to do that. And then also health is not the end destination. Why do you want to be healthy? You know, health is the car. Where are you driving to? Because Mm -hmm. then food and health, again, you want to take care of yourself because it's serving your bigger agenda and your bigger goals versus it being the goal in and of itself. Yeah. I love that idea because I strongly believe that our emotions are fueling your choices. So if you focus on how it's affecting your mood, it's kind of a keeping it narrow enough to like have one thing to do and it's not overwhelming of like figuring things out. But then you'll see naturally how then it impacts what you later do. And just staying with like, how does this make me feel? How's my mood affected? And I know I work with highly sensitive women mostly, and we talk a lot about sensitivity on this podcast. That's kind of one of their superpowers to feel those internal cues that they are really sensitive to their blood sugar. So learning to notice how your blood sugar affects your mood is going to not only help with your eating habits, but also with the challenging part of your sensitivity. I love that, Erica. Yes, yes, 100%. All right. Anything else you want to add before we finish? If there's like one takeaway that you want listeners to leave with, or if there's one thing that we didn't have time and you're like, I need to just mention this before we close, what would that be? Yeah, I think one of the things that when people are tired, you talked about like, okay, you know, the reward cycle, but part of getting out of that reward cycle is feeling less tired. And I think for highly sensitive people, it's really important to realize there's seven types of rest. And one of the biggest ways to replenish yourself is sensory rest. Mm -hmm. That can really help get off your computers. Don't listen to a podcast, 
But I have found so many of my clients turn to food, especially carbs to power through. But if they can just lean into sensory rest or, you know, want some creative rest, emotional rest, highly sensitive people, they need to be off, you know, but really think about that also as a more tactical quick fix. Yeah. 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 I sometimes just to give an example, I will just put noise canceling headphones, no music, just the noise canceling headphone, because I catch myself in other situation. And this is how I've learned to do it. I would put them like to go and teach or something. And the second I would put them, my body would sigh, like, <sighs> just from the noise of the AC and the fan in the fridge. Like I don't even have people in my environment. I live by myself, you know, like things that we don't even notice because they're like this noise in the background, but just from putting the headphones in before I start to teach, my body would be like, Ah, like, thank you. So I've learned, I'm like, okay, I'm feeling a little overstimulated. I'm feeling a little tired. Let's just close off a little hoodie, kind of little hoodie. Like, can I close my ears, remove what I'm seeing with my eyes, little eye pillow? Can I rest for five minutes? And it makes a huge difference for sure. I love that you said that. I will put all your info in the show notes obviously. But in the meantime, where's the best place for people to find you if they want to work with you in some way, if they're like listening to this and they're like, oh, they're talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Where do they go to find you for questions or to work with you? What's happening in your world right now? Yeah. So if people are yoga teachers, practitioners, and they're looking to expand their coaching practice or get into coaching around complex change, like food, money, work. I have my Truce Coaching Certification, which is open for registration once a year and opens September 19th. And people can get a free sneak peek of that at alishapiro.com backslash smart goals. It's basically a workshop on how smart goals don't work, even though that's what everyone uses. <laughs> and then if people want to work with me on an individual level with their food or whatnot, alishapiro.com is my website. And my Truce with Food group starts in January, 2024. And you can sign up at my website at alishapiro.com. And then every month I have a free call. People just bring their questions and you can get on that list at alishapiro.com backslash gathering. Hooray. We'll put all of that in the show notes for people to find it really easily. So guys, go check it out if you need. And I will just say thank you, Ali, for being here. I think this was a lovely conversation. Definitely want to kind of keep going, but yeah, <laughs> we'll love it up here. I love kindred souls. You could go there. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you haven't already done so, leave a review for this episode of the podcast in general on iTunes. If this episode has helped you in any way, you can pass it on and help someone else by leaving your review. Plus, when you leave your review to say thank you, I will give you access to our premium membership for free for a full month. All you have to do is send me a screenshot of your review and we'll get you all set up. Find the show notes for this episode at ericabelanger.com slash 194. Before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to the growing team behind this podcast for their support in making this possible. And this includes all our premium members. Once again, thank you for listening in. See you next Monday.